please take your Bibles and turn them to, well, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And this message is about being clothed. What, what clothes are you wearing? Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So I want to ask you, uh, I gave a little message when I was op- up uh, and we are helping Jonathan build his home and thankfully now the church building is uh, the, the, the uh, foundation is poured. So, and his home is right next to the church building, which is right in back of a store that people come to. Right when you get into the road and going into the main communities, that's where his house is. And, and uh, a lot of it went up quick, but uh, there's the finishing touches still going on with regard to Jonathan's home and Stacy. Lovely uh, couple, loves Jesus, and Jonathan's just great, great pastor there. And uh, keep praying for them. And we're definitely going to need canopies for all you guys back there in the sun, man. <laughs> It's cool what the Lord's doing. Anyway, uh, I want to encourage you guys to keep them in prayer, okay? I made a boo-boo, man, about, you know, three months, two months ago. I was told by someone that enough money had come in to finish the church in the Jonathan's account. And evidently that was wrong information, so I was excited about it. I mentioned it, and I got a, a little call from Jonathan. Oh, Joe, no, we still need X amount of dollars to finish this. That We got enough to finish the home and start the church building, but not enough to finish the church. So I'm just mentioning to you guys, I want to encourage you guys to uh, keep that in prayer. Because wouldn't it be nice to be part of the giving that helps finish off the church that is reaching the Mexican community out there? So I'll... You give to the poor and you extend the kingdom all in one giving because last time we asked for extra money and said, hey, we need money to get the house going to the church and so forth. And we paid Jonathan a salary for the first year to have him up there to, so him and his wife and family were taken care of. Uh, and then we need, you know, needed money. We asked for money. You know how much came in? $103,000. Okay? Uh, that's a lot of money that came in. 3000 from the congregation and then one other person in the congregation or couple gave a hundred thousand okay you can't always rely on that hundred to come in right in fact it probably won't happen that way who knows what the lord will do but if everybody gives to a degree we're eventually going to get this thing done amen but i'm just and i don't we don't talk about giving if you're visiting the church we hardly ever talk about giving how many could raise your hand and say that's true you know absolutely but guess what that's something you have to talk about from time to time if you want to extend the kingdom you don't just say oh i hope people just get it by osmosis you know you have to let the needs be known and when you go through the new testament you see these things our first giver is coming up right now danny boy uh no i'm <laughs> just kidding <bro. laughs> that's right man <laughs> all right i'm sorry i couldn't you know anyway i love you guys but genesis chapter three i want to talk to you about Speaking of giving, we want to talk about the Lord's giving us, you know. That's what this message is about, and that's what all the messages are about, and what, who he is and what he's done for us and how he's blessed us. But you know, you understand that we're wearing clothes right now because we recognize that it's proper to be clothed. You know, if you saw someone walking through, streaking through naked, that's not only against the law, you'd say something's wrong with that person. Because we recognize we're to be covered. We have a sense of shame about our innermost being and, and so forth. We know there's something wrong with us and that's one reason we clothe ourselves. It comes, goes away back to sin, shame, disgrace, guilt because of human rebellion against God. And when you go to Genesis, when the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, uh, deep guilt set in and they recognized that they were naked. Now prior to that, 
being naked, there was no shame in it. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no, nothing wrong. Everything was pure. Everything was good. But their hearts were sinful. And uh, your sexuality can show the deepest aspects of your being in some mysterious way. And they covered themselves. Anybody remember what they covered themselves with? Fig leaves. Genesis 3-7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay? They covered their loins with fig leaves. And it says they sewed for themselves. It was based on their own doings. They're going to cover their own sin and guilt. Did that take away? Did all of a sudden they become pure? Did they not need clothing the next day? Did they say, oh, we don't need these fig leaves the next day? No, there's a problem. The problem didn't go away. And the fig leaves didn't take the problem away. It covered it up a little bit. But it wasn't sufficient. So we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, when God had confronted them, many things go down in chapter 3. But we read in verse 21, it says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The fig leaves were a farce. They were not only not the best covering, but they weren't sufficient to cover their sin. And God, and this is really heavy when you think about it, God killed an animal. Think about this. Was that animal sinful that he killed? Or was it innocent? It was innocent. Amen. First sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, right? Came in through them. Everything was created. And it, the Lord says in day six, it was very good. Amen. So he took an innocent animal and he killed it. And he covered them with the animal skins. So there had to be a sacrifice to cover their sin. That's important to understand. Of a perfect animal. Although that animal wasn't sufficient to take away their sins, only to cover their sins. Okay, the Old Testament word for atonement means covering. The Old Testament sacrifices would cover sin, but they couldn't ultimately take it away. God had to, if God was going to do with their sin, he was going to have to take it away, amen? So later on, as you read, you read in Genesis chapter 4, you had Cain and Abel. Abel, Cain, we're told, was of the evil one in 1 John. He rebelled against the Lord. The Lord had told them, to offer sacrifice. We know this because the Lord's not partial. And we read that Abel just gave some veggies. Cain, I'm sorry, Cain just gave some veggies. Abel, on the other hand, gave something from his flock. And we read in chapter 3, verse 21. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 2, part of verse 2, and then verse 4. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. A lot of translations have a keeper of sheep. Abel, on his part, also brought of verse 4 of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering now we know that Abel did this because of the word of God because we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith we read in Romans chapter 10 faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God amen so he obeyed God's word Cain had his own idea about what he wanted to do and he went back to the vegetables, which the fig leaves represent a human effort to present ourselves before God based on our own ingenuity, our own righteousness, as though we can make up for the wrong that we've done. And while God does want a repentant heart, we can never make ourselves right with God as far as pay the price other than, other than being separated from God. Then we pay the price forever. So it's really interesting that God steps up here. It's really quite fascinating. And when you think of it too, why in the world, think about it. Do you ever think about this? Why did Abel keep flocks? 
not to eat. They're eating vegetables still. It's not until after the flood that they're eating meat. Do you know that? They were vegetarians at first. And the new heaven and the new earth, we won't eat meat. We won't eat meat. Okay, I'm, I'm hoping, I don't have a word on it, but I'm hoping the, some of the fruit does taste like tri-tip, you know. Uh, but uh, I'm just gonna, there's no sorrow in heaven, so we're going to say, ah, the meat on earth was better. The leeks and the onions in Egypt, you know. We won't do that thing, man, because it's going to be just pure joy and everything's going to transcend our wildest thoughts, you know. So it's interesting when you think about this. He wasn't keeping flocks for food. We know in chapter 3, verse 20, that God wanted them to clothe themselves with what? Animal skins, right? And we know that sheep and even goats give off, you know, uh, a lot of hair, right? Wool and so forth to keep you warm. And it may have also been for the sacrifices, you know? And God knew that eventually they'd also be eating meat after the flood. Because when the flood came and there was entropy set into the cosmos and the second law of thermodynamics and all of creation, it says groans to be delivered and everything's falling apart, that the resources of the earth and the vegetation that God had provided when they were kicked out of Eden and the wars that would take place because of human rebellion against God and a lack of love for God and one another, that there would be a lack of resources so God allowed the eat of meat as a supplement. But in the new heaven and new earth, it talks about how the lion and the lamb, you know, and the snake and the little boy and the, ca- and the oxen, they'll all hang out together. The little boy can hang out at a snake hole and not worry about it. It's going to be awesome, isn't it, in the kingdom? But right now, we're, we can eat meat. Now, it's interesting because I just think it's fascinating that the flocks were already being kept, you know. And this was because of God's provision, not only of clothing, but the first clothing had to do with sin, the sin issue, and covering the sin of humanity. And I think it's very fascinating that you have flocks being kept and you have Abel offering one from his flocks and the flocks would be most likely sheep. Could have also been some goats there. They're related. Uh, So the first sacrifices were probably lamb sacrifices. We know in Genesis 22, not too many chapters later, God told Abraham to take his son, his only begotten son, whom he loves up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, right? And, it came, and what's going on here, right? And we do know that that was like 2,000 before Christ was sacrificed on the same mountain that Christ would be sacrificed. He takes him up and Isaac's an older guy because he's carrying the wood up the mountain, you know, up to Mount Moriah. And he says, Father, the wood and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Father will provide himself. God will provide himself the sacrifice. Amen. And 2000, that was the first passion play. I, I called a message, message years ago called the, I called it the first passion play because it struck me. The Germans do a passion play every year because a plague swept through Germany killing all, all kinds of people. One village prayed and said, Lord, if you spare this village and don't let any of us die, you know, we'll, have, we'll do something for you for time immemorial. They were spared. And every so many years now, they do a passion play where the whole town you know, dentists and doctors and cab drivers, everybody gets involved and they have these huge operas and they reenact the crucifixion of Christ to give honor to Jesus. It's called the Passion Play. Went there to Germany and I thought, man, the Passion Play has to be this year. It's too much money, so we didn't do it. (laughs) But you know what? Guess what? There's another Passion Play I would never miss. And you just have to read about it in Genesis chapter 22. 2,000 years before Christ, Isaac, who was born from a supernatural birth because Sarah's womb was barren, even as Mary's would be, barren 2,000 years ago because she is a virgin, right? Boom, God supernaturally allows her to birth. Uh, 
First time you see the word love, remember, in the, book of, in the Old Testament is this, take your son whom you love. First time you see the New Testament, God says, this is my son of Jesus whom I love. You see, uh, he, Jesus is called the only begotten son of God. Abraham is told to take Isaac, his only begotten son, even though he had another one named Ishmael who wasn't begotten of the promise. Isaac carries a wood up the Mount Moriah. Jesus carries his cross up Mount Moriah. Not an accident. There's a lot more pictures that we don't have time to get into, but those, that sacrifice of, and guess what? Isaac's like, worse. he'll provide himself a lamb. He's up there. God says, don't touch the boy, right? Through the, through the angel. And God, why does he bring him? He brings him a male lamb, a ram, caught in the thickets. And he brings the lamb over instead and has it killed. But after that lamb is provided, you know what the Lord calls that mountain? Remember, Jehovah Jireh? Yahweh Jireh. In the mount of the Lord, it will be what? It will be seen or it will be provided. What, what's going on there? It was 2,000 years later. God had his son die for us. Amen. Because these lamb sacrifices could never take away our sins. Because a little lamb is innocent and beautiful and what a beautiful picture of God's innocent and dying for us sinners is not equivalent to a human being. Amen. But God becoming a man is not only equivalent in the sense of shares a value as a human but has far more value because he's God in the flesh and he could die for all human beings. Amen. Do you understand that? It's really mind-boggling when you think about it. And we have all these typologies, all these pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus. That's why I was a skeptic. I was not a Christian. And when I became a Christian and started reading these radical types and pictures prophetically in, a Jew, in the Jewish Old Testament, the Tanakh, and they don't even understand who Jesus is. Well, the whole early church was all Jewish. But most Jews, it, there's a veil over their eyes. When you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like, wow, this is so powerful what God has done. And you know, when God gave them the Exodus, he took the blood of the first, of, of a male lamb, right? Full grown, just like Jesus would be. They'd have to examine it for five days before they'd kill it. Jesus was examined for five days in Jerusalem and they tried to find sin in him. When he went to Jerusalem, it was five days they tried to find sin in him. And he went to the cross and he died. What day did Jesus die on? Passover day. Paul said, Christ, our Passover was, died for us. Chapter five, I think verse seven of First Corinthians. Jesus was said of Jesus by John the Baptist in John 1 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. But you remember the blood that was to cover the door. Where would you put the blood? Remember that? When you killed the pastor, that was the 10th plague. And I'll go through this real quick because we've, we've talked about this and we'll continue to talk about this until we die. But you remember uh, the 10th plague upon the Egyptians was the death angel would execute the firstborn of everybody in the land, the Egyptians. Remember, it was reciprocal as Pharaoh was putting to death the first, or was putting to death the boys, the babies. Remember that? Of the, of the Israelites? And the 10th plague was the death of their firstborn. But God let his people know, the Israelites, if they took the blood and they put it on the lintel, right? The doorpost and on the lintel, up here and here, of the lamb, of the unblemished, perfect lambs, male, inspected for five days, in the form of a what? What would that make as the, what, as the blood dripped into the basin? It would make a cross. 2,000 years later, where was the blood splattered on Jesus' cross? Up here and on the sides, right? And it would stream down. Same deal. So now, when, if we're covered in his blood, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the death sentence upon us passes over us, amen? It's a beautiful truth. Are you cleansed by the blood, Amen? Are the doorposts of your heart covered? 
because either you're going to pay for your own sins or you're going to accept the payment that God made in his great love on your behalf. Amen? What an awesome God we have. Now, as we talk about the, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I want to keep with this metaphor because I gave a short message. Jonathan had me share uh, with his congregation and I had different things that were on my heart to share, but I kept praying about it. And I walked them through some of these same scriptures, you know. And I thought, man, and, uh, and I touched a lot of people. And uh, his right-hand man, uh, Jonathan's uh, a deacon who's becoming an elder there, uh, Isaac, real sweet brother, you know. He just testified how much it had touched him and other people did that, wow, it's not by our own efforts. It's, 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 it's by his righteousness that we're saved, amen. It's by, it's by his provision that we're saved and what him giving his son that we're saved. And we know that, but when you see the pictures that he lays down, God wants to indelibly imprint within your heart that it's not based on your own efforts by which you're saved, but it's based on this incredible sacrifice that God has given for us. And the pictures get us to not just think of it in a kind of rational sense of, yeah, this makes sense. There's a forensic, you know, judicial pardoning that takes place because Christ gave his life for us. But you, see, you begin to see the beauty of it. I think it's amazing. If you will, please go to Zechariah chapter 4. And I just wrote down, when I was praying for that message, I just wrote down a couple, some scripture references in my Bible. Top here, and then we get to here, go there. When you go to there, go over here. And it was that kind of message. For this one, I kind of typed it out more. I wrote it out, and I thought about it. I prayed about it through the night. The, I woke up. I couldn't get to sleep for a couple of hours, and it wasn't my message. I had a whole other message prepared for you uh, today. But as I sought the Lord last night and we crying out to him, I said, this message started getting burned on my heart, you know. And, uh, and thankfully, <laughs> I couldn't go back to sleep. So I thought, this is great, you know. And then I just got up and uh, put down what was on my heart. But Zechariah chapter 4 is heavy. Because you know who was perceived as the holiest man in Israel at that time? When you read Zechariah 4, and we're talking about the exiles returning, you know, to rebuild the temple and then rebuild the wall and all that stuff is about to go on. And, and uh, well, Joshua was the high priest of Israel. There's only one high priest. And by the way, Joshua was a picture of Christ. The high priest was a picture of Christ. Yet Joshua, in his humanity, was just a sinner like all of us. And guess what happened? Well, it's heavy. Look at Zechariah chapter 3. I'm sorry. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? See, Satan's there to accuse Joshua. He knows Joshua's sin. He knows that Joshua is not perfect. He knows the truth that all of sin and come short of the glory of God. He knows the wage of sin is death. And he wants to point the finger and say, this guy deserves to die. And he did deserve to die. Like every human being, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Amen. And God, the Lord says, I, I love it. This angel says, the Lord rebuke you, uh, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That's all of us, man. We've been plucked from the fire. If you're a believer. In the book of Jude, it talks about snatching people from the fire. Because we deserve to be judged. We deserve condemnation because of our sin. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Isn't that heavy? He was clothed with filthy garments. Okay? Standing before the angel. That's not how you present yourself before God. Garments are a picture of your character, of your life, 
is, you know, in the biblical, the biblical metaphor. Now, nakedness is a picture of what? Our sin and shamefulness, right? So he's standing with filthy garments, standing before the Lord. By the way, I did a word search on that word filthy years ago, Hebrew word, and it's used in the Bible in the Old Testament, both of vomit and human excrement. So these garments were pretty gross. Do you have to use such graphic language? Absolutely. God's about truth. He wants you to understand how disgusting we are if we just try to come to him on our own in our own sin and act like it's no big deal. Because, you know, sin is a huge deal to God. We try to minimize sin, right? And that's like a pig putting on a, a bow tie. Like, I'm not a pig. No, you're a pig still. I'm not a pig. I got a bow tie. Look at this. That doesn't change him. Okay? We have a sin problem. And every time you sin, you fling an arrow into God's heart, you know. It's a sin against him and his kingdom and his righteousness. And Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angels. So Satan thought, I got this guy, man. But guess what? Verse 4. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, this, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes, robes for feasting. Notice the garments are a picture of what? Iniquity, right? Take the filthy garments away. He says, see, I have taken your what? iniquity or your sin away from you so understand the garments here are a metaphor a picture of sin they're a picture of his sin his life and those things he did outside of the lord see i've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes notice he is giving him robes to wear he's providing the garments does this sound familiar where did we just read this taking place similar where was that in genesis the same thing's going on satan deceives uh eve Eve gives to Adam. They're in rebellion to God. Satan's active. He wants them condemned. They try to cover themselves up with fig leaves, but that's filthy in God's sight because it shows their sin still. He provides the sacrifice of an animal. And here he gives him festal robes. And the festal robes would be the feast robes. The robes, the, the high priest would wear certain robes to the feast. And they had seven feasts a year and three feasts that were broken into like seven feasts and and three times a year, they would go up to celebrate the Feast of the Lord, like the Passover feast, right? They'd go up. The high priest would wear these radical festal robes where he would have 12 different precious stones. If you have this, how many of you have seen those, those, the high priest robe? You know, he'd have the same symbols on his shoulders. He'd wear these 12 robes. The high priest had the, each, what, what do those precious stones represent? Do you guys remember? Each one represented one of the tribes of Israel. And it showed that he was burying the tribes of Israel over his heart, okay? Okay, and that's, and his, he's gonna, he, the high priest is a picture of Jesus, amen, who bore the sins of Israel and the world, amen? So God has a whole program going on here, which is quite amazing. And we read this. He says in verse five, then I said, then I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. One of the things I love about the Bible, there's all kinds of evidence that this is the word of God, prophecy that gets fulfilled, all kinds of things. But one of the things I love about the Bible is it's like a hand in the glove. The themes throughout from Genesis. We started in Genesis, we'll end in Revelation, by the way, today, okay? And the themes, when you look at them, you go through them, it's like so mind-boggling. And it's, the, it's a unity. Even though God spent over 1,500 years using over 40 different authors in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, 
to weave one message together. You just take three people here and have three people here that have a talk first and one go to Florida, one go to New York, and one stay in California. They write a book together and they put all three parts, all three parts together, not over 40, right? And they speak the same language and they arrive at the same time. You're going to have a mass of contradictions. But here you have symmetry because it's all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And it's one of the, one of the many evidences of the inspiration of Scripture. So it's important that we get this. Now, go to Luke chapter 15. We'll only spend a few minutes in Luke 15, 6, 7 max, hopefully, because I just did a whole message a few months ago on the prodigal son. But this is so beautiful. And I'll mention some things I didn't mention with the prodigal son. And I'll probably say some things I did say as they fit and pertain to this particular message because they fit in our theme all too well. Remember, the prodigal son was the younger of the two sons. And he wanted to take his inheritance early. He wanted nothing to do with his father. He wanted to go off and live a life of sin and rebellion. And according to his brother, he hooked up with loose women. If his brother is a reliable witness against him, you don't know for sure. He was bitter toward him. He might have jumped to a conclusion there. But he did waste his money. He ran out of money. And he ends up eating pig, or I'm sorry, feeding the pigs, which was unclean in Israel. Amen. And if you were feeding the pigs, that means you lost your inheritance. That means you don't even want to show up among the Jews because you're ashamed of yourself. And that means you're trying to make a living in the lowest wage job you can just to eke out an existence. And I'll tell you what, you ever been to a pig farm? I was at a pig farm a few weeks back when I went to Israel. Not far from Jonathan, up the road, is a pig farm. And when the waft would come through when you're working and hammering, breathing really hard, it's like, woo, man, Lord, I gotta get used to this, you know. And, uh, and it's pretty gnarly. But you know what? At one of the breaks, man, I grabbed one of my grandkids, Ariella, and uh, took her up to the pig farm, you know, just half a mile up the road or so, uphill a little bit, and uh, if that, and maybe quarter mile. But as I was getting closer, you got to go up this little, you know, little knoll, and, as, and I'll say, no, it's all wet from the slop that came down. I got to kind of like maneuver myself, and I wasn't going to turn back at that point, if you know me. It's like, you know, I'm going... And then I get to the fence, and we're looking over the fence and through the cracks, and there's all these pigs. And they're on top of each other. They're just, uh, it's, I'm sorry. And the, you thought the smell was down the road bad? It was like a wall of stench. And I just thought of the prodigal son. I thought, if you're not used to this, I mean, if you told me, okay, Joe, I want you to feel, feed the pigs for the next three weeks, I have to be in serious prayer. Lord, please get me through this. Oh, I, I not only accept masks, now I have 50 masks on my head, okay? Because it's like, you know, the stench was so bad, you know? And it was so thick. And I was like, wow, to go and just live in that. And so this, I thought, this really brought that part of the prodigal son to life for me. But it's interesting, when he comes back to his father, he doesn't know that his father will even forgive him or accept him as a son. He doesn't think he will because he said, I'll go back and work with the hired hands, right? Because he wasted the father's inheritance, which was such an untold, shameful thing in those days. In fact, if you wasted the inheritance of your father after he died even, and just blew it all, it was because such a shame. But if he was still alive, that was unheard of. So it's interesting. He's coming back to his father. And let's pick up the story, because I just want to make a couple points. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. 
Now, his father was definitely motivated by compassion. It says that. We know why his father did that. But notice he ran to him and he kissed him. Okay? Do you remember me mentioning when we went through the prodigal son a, f- a few months back that running in the, that culture was considered a no-no for an adult? Do you remember that? It was considered uncouth. It was considered even shameful. Okay? Why, though? Why was it shameful? Was it, it was considered maybe undignified for adults to run, but there's more to it than that. And I didn't really get super deep on that point because I want to make a lot of other points, but I'll get a little deeper on that point this time around because it fits with the narrative that the Scripture wants us to understand uh, regarding garments and so forth. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his son, I'm sorry, but the father said to his uh, slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Now notice he says, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Quickly, do it quick, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. And he was lost, and he has been found, and they began to celebrate. And I pointed out to you last time, when the son was going to confess, he said what he was going to confess to his father, right? That the father just cuts him off. He sees his heart, begins to confess, and he just lets him know, get this done. But he wants him to do it in a real hurry. Okay, there's something really, really, really heavy going on. Okay, quickly, by the way, it says bring out the best what? Quickly bring out the best what? Robe. Don't miss that. That's heavy when you think of the narrative, okay? Because I was telling you, you need to see these parables, or I should say it's best to see these parables, because not everybody can see them through first century eyes. When you see these parables through the first century eyes and through the culture that was going on then, it's so picturesque. Jesus, in a very small amount of words, covers so much ground because keep in mind, pigs were considered unclean. The Gentiles were considered unclean. And he comes back. His father runs and he embraces him in these dirty, stenchy street clothes that smell like pigs. Okay? And the father represents Jesus here, doesn't he? We know the Father represents Jesus here. We know that because in Luke 15, right before this, the tax gatherers and the people that Jesus is ministering to, the drunks and all these people, the religious leaders, like how could he, if he knew they were sinners, why would he even talk to these guys? And then Jesus was showing how he was reaching out to the prodigals. Amen? And and this is a story, a picture of Jesus. And Jesus partook of our stench. Amen? Of our piggishness. Amen? Our uncleanness. He didn't become a sinner but he partook of human flesh. Amen? Now, it's interesting because the father, why was it a shame for the father to run in that culture? Because in Jewish culture, nakedness was considered shameful, a disgrace. And men didn't wear pants in those days. They wore what? They wore robes. So if you wanted to run, the Bible talks about how they'd have to what? When the God said, take off and leave Egypt, what do you say? Gird up your loins, amen? If I was three years younger, I would have caught that one with my left hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you, sister. Praise the Lord. Appreciate that. Uh, I, you know what? Because you'd have to show your nakedness. You'd have to hike up your garment, and then all of a sudden you'd be showing your bare legs, which was a no-no in that culture. And he'd be running. But the father was motivated by love. In fact, check this out. In, in Isaiah chapter 20, 
Nakedness is a very clear sign of sin, shame, judgment. Isaiah the prophet uh, was made to go about stripped, it says. Literally, it says, he went about stripped and barefoot. And he was a picture of the impending judgment that was to come upon Israel. God had him wander about stripped and barefoot because of the judgment that they were going to have, right? So we also see in Ezekiel chapter 23, unfaithful Israel is idolatrous. She's being adulterous and she's considered the adulterous wife of Yahweh and she's going to be handed over to the Assyrians and people will see her nakedness, her shame, her disgrace. It's quite interesting. In the Jewish culture, the temple police, if you were a Jew, guess what would happen if you were the temple policeman and you fell asleep on duty? They would strip you of all your clothes, really embarrassing, and they'd burn your clothes and they'd send you off. You'd lose your job. Okay, that was serious stuff because being naked, partially naked, it was considered, in that culture, was considered exceedingly sinful, you know. And guess what? Uh, it was considered shameful, disgraceful. Now, him hiking up his, uh, obviously, he's not sinning. That was a cultural thing. To, for his legs to be shown wasn't a sin, okay, but in that culture, it was like, oh, no. But guess what? It was considered a, a shame and a disgrace for man to do that. What was he doing? He was bearing shame so his son wouldn't have to. Think about it. There's, it's really, really powerful. And I don't know if you know, but when I was going through the prodigal son, I was bringing out what I thought are some really, really cool points that really ministered to me. And that's a lot of what I teach. What really hits me, I think is going to hit others, you know. And I say, when I go through those, I go, there's always way more than we're ever able to cover. And I, sometimes I tell you, what I bring when I preach is not what I can get. It's what I have to cut out. And it bums me out a lot of times because I want everybody to know everything, you know. And it's like, well, guess what? Think about this. We didn't really emphasize it was a shame because of his, he bore his legs, okay? And it was considered, oh no, think about this now. There's such a picture here. He's running. Why is he running? Why is he running? Does anybody remember why he's running? I mean, he doesn't have to run, or does he? He's running for a very, very important reason. And uh, that's because, according to ancient Jewish sources, they had what they called the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza, the Kazaza ceremony was a ceremony, literally in Hebrew means the cutting off ceremony, to cut someone off. And the Kazaza ceremony was, took place when a son had left home, and if he came back and he had married an immoral woman, they'd perform this ceremony, and they cut him off. Or if he came back and he had squandered his father's inheritance, the villagers would see him coming. They would get a clay pot. They'd, put, they'd burn nuts. They'd burn corn, like waste them, put them in the pot. They'd bring the, the sun before the villagers. They'd get in a big circle. They'd look at this guy, and they would crush that pot. Then they'd take him to the outskirts of the village and say, get out of here, don't come back, you're cut off. We cut off. Why is the father running? Think about it. Why is the father running to him? Think about it. Because guess what? <laughs> when you live in a village and your son's coming and everybody knows your son and he's dressed in clothes that take care of pigs, get the pot, get the corn, you know, get the nuts, let's burn them. Get ready, we got to cut this guy off. And guess what happens? 
the father runs and bears the shame, right, in place of his son, grabs a hold of him, kisses him because he loves him, partakes of his stench, kisses him because he loves him, and he says, bring out, hurry, quickly. Why quickly? Why, why be so quick about it? Just talk to him. Hey, what's up and everything. No, quickly before everybody sees him. So he wouldn't have to be shamed. Are you with me now? It's so powerful when you have the background. Amen. Run, run, go. That's how much our Father loves us. That's how much he doesn't want us to stay in our shame. Amen. That God becomes a man. And the application is huge. He leaves his home, even as father ran, amen? He comes in the fullness of time, amen? He embraces us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's reaching out to these prodigals, amen? How could he hang out with these unclean people? Because guess what? The father would even get some stench on him from the pigs, right? He, and Jesus, not just bears his legs, guys. He bears his nakedness on the cross. Don't you see how much he loves you? God becomes a man and takes the shame. It says because the shame, because the glory that was said before him, the joy, he bore our shame in Hebrews chapter 12. Amen. It was humiliating for a Jew to be partially naked, but he's pretty much fully naked on the cross. God becoming a man to pay for our sins. Amen. That's amazing love. That's how much God loves you personally. If you were the only one here, the only one on earth, I believe God would have given his son for you. So you have this incredible picture. He leaves us home. He runs to us. He bears our shame. Okay. He takes our sin upon himself in the sense that he paid for it. And rather than us having Kazaza being cut off, he's cut off from the land of the living, it says. Amen. Isaiah 53 and Daniel chapter 9 both say that he was cut off for us. Amen. He was cut off for you. So we could become what? Children of God. Amen. He was coming back hoping he could be some kind of servant because they're better treated than the guys that are feeding the pigs. But he says, my son, he goes, was lost, but now he's found. He was dead. Yeah, he was dead spiritually because he turned away. But now he's what? Alive again, you know? So it's very, very powerful when you think about it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. In the Greek, it means to kiss continually. We have an awesome, awesome God. Amen? But you know what? What if the son said, Dad, I like these pig clothes, and I want to sit at the front of the table with these pig clothes on, you know? Do you think that would have went over well? No, he had to humble himself. He couldn't say, hey, look at my fig leaves. Hey, look at my garments. Hey, look at my pig. Look, I'm a good guy. And try to justify and make a bunch of excuses for what he had done wrong. He didn't do that. He had to humble himself. And by the way, think about this. It gets deeper. It says, bring, quickly go and get the what robe? The best robe. Who do you think the best robe belonged to in the house? The dad, right? Amen. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ. It would have been his festal robe. I'm not saying it would be the high priest robe. I'm saying ultimately we're clothed by his righteousness. But he'd get the best robe, probably the f a festal robe, and it would put it on the sun. And all of a sudden, the villagers that would come out, and maybe some of them would follow him, right? they see him running like, what is going on here? We've never seen this guy run and bare his legs, and they'd go out there. 
And they'd see this and they'd say, wow. Wow, his father really loves him. He's restoring him to his household. He's forgiving him and it's his right to do that, you know. Or maybe they didn't even see the clothes he was in. They just see him come back in this robe. You know, we don't know exactly how it shook out. But it's really, really heavy, that parable, when you think about it. And I just went through it a while ago and didn't bring up some of the points I brought up here. That's how deep this thing gets. But guess what? We have to make sure we humble ourselves. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And when you get there, go ahead and look at the parable of the wedding feast. And here we see Jesus is about ready to die for our sins, the sins of the world. And he sends out, he gives a parable of a wedding feast and a king who has a feast for his son, a wedding feast plan, a wedding. And the Jews are all invited, you know, people in the kingdom. And a lot of them are, ah, oh, we're too busy to come. They're unwilling to come. It says they were unwilling. Why don't some people come? Because they're unwilling. It says they're unwilling to come. And then he says, basically, like the parable of the, 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 the big supper, you also read in Luke, that he, go to the highways and byways, although the language isn't loose here, used here, but it's to go beyond the invitation, which pretty much every commentator agrees, and I believe it's correct. It's a picture of him going to the Gentiles, going to the whole world, right? And he judges that city that rejected him and is burned, you know. And that's a picture of what happened to uh, Jerusalem and so forth in 70 AD after Christ had been rejected by his own people. But the Lord went to everyone and invited, it's a picture of him inviting everybody to the wedding. But something very strange happens. Look at verse 11. Let's pick the story up at verse 11. But when the king came to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a picture of hell. For many are called, but few are what? Many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, there was a sincere invitation that went out, right? I mean, right after this, Jesus will give, talk about in, in chapter 23, the very next chapter, how is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would gather your children together as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. So, those who are unwilling will not be among the chosen. Those who come and are willing will be among the chosen. How, what's the difference? I love the illustration that if there's a sign, like there's, a, for instance, like a sign on heaven, whosoever will may come, amen? Anybody can come, but some people refuse to come. And those who come, they turn around, they get down inside of heaven, they see the sign chosen before the foundations of the world, okay? God knows who will respond to his call and who won't. He's sincere. He's, love, he, he's not a respecter of persons. He's not partial. He doesn't will that any would perish. Amen. But certain people reject him. And when people reject him, never blame it on God that God didn't love them enough. Jesus didn't die for them. He didn't really care about them. Oh, he, he gets joy out of watching them suffer for eternity. Wrong, 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 wrong. The Bible says we are without excuse. It's on us if we reject the Lord's call. Amen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Those other ones who were unwilling, if they had been willing, they would have been among the chosen. But this guy is kind of a different animal, man, because he actually wants to go. He wants to be part of the wedding. He just shows up in his own clothes. He rejects the provision of the king. So the king provides wedding garments. You can only get into his son's wedding if you're wearing the, gov the garments that he's providing. But the man will not humble himself. He's like, no. I'm good enough as I am. I'm going to come, and guess what? I'm going to come, and I'm going to crash this wedding in my own attire because I'm pretty cool. I like what I'm wearing. I want to be different. And he rejects the provision made by the king. 
and in rejecting this provision, he's cast out, man. I mean, it's pretty gnarly what happens to him. Into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the idea there is these wedding garments that the Lord provides, the king provides, the picture of the righteousness that God provides us, amen? Very costly, okay? Very, very costly. What price was paid for these garments? The garments of salvation, the garments of eternal life, the garments of righteousness, the blood of his only begotten son. So to reject the king's provision and say, hey, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to stand before God in my own righteousness is exceedingly sinful. It's it's basically saying I'm righteous enough to get into God's kingdom. I've never sinned or my sin's not that big of a deal. And this parable is showing people thinking that they can get in based on their own righteousness. There's some that don't, "Ah, don't bug me, I'm too busy. I'll just go to hell or I'll just answer the call later and they just don't go. But there's others that are saying, I'm going and I run into them all the time. We have a lot of people coming to salvation, different people when we were in a, on the trip to build Jonathan's home and so forth, uh, uh, what, a month and a half ago when we were up there uh, and we'll probably put that out eventually. I thought it was going to eventually be a podcast or something, but it's pretty beautiful because we, we get to see a lot of people come to Christ, but one of the things a lot of them say is, because uh, I love to say, hey, if you, if you, if you die today, we're street witnessing, we're open air preaching. I say, hey, if you die today and God said, why shall I eat my kingdom in my heaven, what would you say? And a lot of people say over and over again, because I'm a good guy or I've done a lot of good things. That's going in your own righteousness, in your own fig leaves, right? And I love to give them the opportunity to say, hey, no, you know, all of us, me too, we're all sinners. We all need the grace of Christ. We all fall short. But let me show you what God did for you. It's got to be based on what he did in Christ's sacrifice that we enter in the kingdom, amen? And in Mexico, it's powerful because a lot of people have some kind of understanding of God, some fear of God, believe the Bible to some degree, uh, Roman Catholic background, but as being Roman Catholic, so many of them think it's about what you do to enter. They don't know the gospel. So their hearts are often ready. They're close. And then you let them know, here's what the Bible that you have actually says. It's by grace we're saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. Amen? And uh, it's amazing. The, 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 as Jesus said elsewhere, speaking of even his own people, that the harvest was white under snow. The harvest is white, uh, ripe in Mexico. That's why, Lord, help us to get your word out there. So it's interesting, but we have to humble ourselves. It's hard. It offends our pride. If someone says to you, you know what, you're invited to a wedding, but you, you can't wear what's in your closet. Someone say, well, I don't got a lot of money to pay for it. It's not about you paying anything. It's already provided for you what you're going to wear. You got, you'd have to humble yourself and say, oh, I got to wear something else somebody else wants to wear. And you may or may not go to that wedding, but guess what? When it's God saying you're going to get my kingdom, it's not going to be based on you wearing filthy garments that smell like puke and smell like excrement. Yeah, of course. Where do I sign up, Lord? What do you want me to wear? That's, we need to have humility before him. In fact, we've got to be like the little children, the Bible says, to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like, a, like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to humble yourself and say, You know what? I have to admit, I'm, I really do need to be forgiven. I need to be forgiven my sins. We have sin. 
You know, in the Masonic Lodge, when you have Masonic uh, funerals, it's very sad. They'll have a lambskin. Sometimes they'll drape it over the casket. And you know what the lambskin represents? They state at the great white throne judgment, God will see that lambskin and it will represent the righteousness of the person who died. And because of that person's righteousness, they'll get into heaven at the great white throne judgment. That's so unscriptural. The lamb is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Amen? The great white throne judgment happens over a thousand years after believers are caught up, resurrected, and are with the Lord. It's for the wicked when you read it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And those, everyone's name who's not written in the Lamb's book of life, says Lamb's book of life, the, the book of life, I should say, speaks of the Lamb's book of life, will be thrown in the lake of fire because you have to accept his righteousness and what he did for you. And it's an insidious practice. It's, but I've read from uh, in different Greek or different lodges on, online where they say what it represents from their books and it represents their own righteousness because they don't teach it's through the righteousness of Christ that you're saved. You can believe any God, you know. And a lot of systems teach to get to heaven, you have to tithe for a year. You have to go through certain ceremonies. You've got to do these different things. And you do enough good things, man, you'll get into the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves a gift of God, not of works, so anyone should boast. Amen? We do righteous things as Christians not to earn our salvation, but because of his goodness. And we're so thankful. And we obey him because we love him and he's Lord. Amen? If we rebel against him and do our own thing, we're not really following him. True? Amen? And I tell people, and when I witnessed, I was just witnessing someone recently, and I said, hey, uh, so say, for instance, you're given a, and I use this analogy a lot. I do this with people that have a Catholic background. Let's say, you know, your friend gives you a gift, and it's uh, a new bike or something. It's really cool. You love it. You're like, wow, it's for, for Christmas. And he says, oh, and there's an envelope that goes with it. He goes, oh, you're like, wow, you open the envelope. And it gives you like 15 things you have to do if you want the bike. You have to mow his lawn for the next, every week for a year. You have to go wash his car every week for the next year. Yeah. I go, would that be a gift? It's like, no. <laughs> of course not. Of course it wouldn't be a gift because now you're working for it. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. It's a free gift. It's a different gospel to teach that you must work for your salvation. That's why the Bible warns of angels bringing false gospels. Galatians 1, 6-8. Paul says, I marvel that you are so quickly removed from him who has called you to the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is really not another gospel. But if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, than that which we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So we have to stick with the gospel that the Lord's given us. And it, praise God, it is good news. Amen? It's good news. So what if Adam and Eve had said, Lord, we're going to stick with the fig leaves. I mean, we know you mean well in everything. We just don't want those garments. What would have happened to them? Be bad trouble. Because you know what the Bible says of our own righteousness? It says they're like filthy garments. Listen to Isaiah 64. You could go there if you want. Chapter 64, verses 5 and 6. The latter part of verse 5. But when he continued to sin against them, but when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So all of our righteousness is like what? It says here, 
filthy rags. By the way, does anybody remember, we've talked about this before, in the Hebrew, what filthy rags stand for? Menstrual cloths, okay? Just God saying, hey, and that was, when a woman was on a period, it's because unclean. And God's saying, that's what it looks like to me. And you go to Joshua, it looks like vomit, it looks like excrement. We try to say, God, accept me. It's like pig stench. It's like, whoo, it's very, very offensive. Our sin is offensive to God. Because sin is rebellion against his law of love. Loving him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor's self, and it's destructive and it's damaging. When we look at crimes in our country that are going on like crazy, why are they considered crimes typically? Because they're destructive. And that's what sin is. It's destructive. But guess what God offers us? I love this. Beauty for ashes, amen. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Catch that? So we exchange our filthy garments, he says, for the garments of what? Salvation. Eternal life. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Isn't that cool? He's wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Not our own righteousness. Righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Paul, man, after saying he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, man, he was blameless according to the Jewish law, at least in their eyes, right? And he seemed so righteous to everybody, but then he realized he was a wretched sinner before God. Who will save me from this body of death? He comes to Christ. And in Philippians 3, listen to what he says. More than that, I count all things law to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. By the way, the word rubbish there refers to trash, but also human excrement. Verse 9, that I might be found in him, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Catch that? Paul did not want to stand before the Lord in a righteousness of his own derived by law, saying, look how good I am, God. But, he says, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen? How do you get clothed in the righteousness of Christ? How do you get saved from your own filth? And how do you put on the garment of salvation through faith in Christ? You put your trust in the one who gave himself for you. Amen? And then you pass from death to life. And the Bible says if you're in the faith trusting him, you will not come in to condemnation. Amen? Amen. Hey, Keith, can you come up here real quick? You're not in trouble. It's just a little illustration. I think you'd be great for this. Give, give Keith a hand, man. He didn't know this was happening. Let's step up here. All right, come here, buddy. This guy's awesome, man. So check it out. I'm here, Joe Schimmel. Before the Lord, in my own righteousness, I'm condemned, right? I deserve darkness, outer darkness. I deserve thorns. Thorns and thistles came up after Adam and Eve sinned, and we have, like I mentioned, entropy. All creation has been cursed because of our sin and rebellion against God. And we deserve judgment. We deserve death. Amen? Amen? But what happens? God sends His Son, amen, in our place. Okay? And then the Lord's Son comes, right? He takes my place. And He takes the judgment that I deserve. Amen? Now I deserve judgment. I'm the one that deserves it, right? But He takes my place and he takes the crown of thorns on his head. Amen. On the cross, it became dark. The wrath of the Father fell upon Jesus. He's naked. You're going to stay clothed here, buddy. He's <laughs> cut off. He dies. He pays for my sins. Amen. But guess what? He took my place. 
But guess what I take? His place. He's, accept, he's rejected so I could be what? Accepted. He's condemned so I could be what? Pardoned. And now I'm in the beloved. Now he rises from the dead. Amen. And then I now share his righteousness because I'm now in him. Amen. And I'm resurrected. Amen. What a beautiful reality that is. Thank you so much, Keith. You're awesome, man. Love you. So that's what we call in theology the great exchange. Amen. God took our place. Amen. What a beautiful truth. Amen. And he took my garments, fell upon him, my sin, that I might partake of his righteousness. Are you getting it? It's so beautiful. It is so profound. One of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to this. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you catch that? He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. He knew no sin. He was over here. He left his home, stripped naked, bore our sin on the cross, that we might be partake of the, and become the righteousness of God. It's so beautiful. A couple more verses. Go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. I want to ask you, are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Do you have the robes of righteousness? Are you standing in your own righteousness? Or are you putting your faith in Christ and the righteousness of God through him? Which clothes you? Clothes you. You make sure your faith is in Christ. And you make sure you keep your eyes on Jesus. And you make sure that you don't start off good. Amen. And then all of a sudden you turn back to self-righteousness. Remember the church of Galatia? They're like, well, we're saved by grace. They're all excited. Paul said, you started well. Who has put a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? You know, you began in the spirit, but now you're trying to be perfected by the flesh. And he says, Christ will be of no value to them who are trying to keep the law. They'll be severed from Christ, fall from grace, on and on and on. You have to make sure that you don't go back to your own righteousness. That you don't look to yourself and say, I'm such a good person. God accepts me. He must have really saw something really neat in me. No. <laughs> he saw sin in all of us. That's why Christ was sent to die for us. Amen. And you must keep your faith in Christ and every day look to Jesus and his sacrifice. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 16, right before Armageddon. Right before Armageddon, he gives us a warning. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a what? Thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and what? And keeps his clothes. So that he will not what? Walk about what? Naked and men will not see his what? shame because your nakedness that's a picture of your he's not that literally walking around naked but he's talking about walking in your own righteousness and you say no i'm good man i i go to church or i do this no he said don't walk in your own nakedness that's sin keep your garments he says blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments keeps his clothes what's that that's the robes of christ that's the robes of salvation amen keep trusting jesus keep clothed in the righteousness of christ amen so if you're a Christian, you just keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep trusting him, amen? If you're not a Christian, well, go to the last chapter of the Bible. Last chapter of the book of Revelation, last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Verse 15. Outside, this is outside of the kingdom of God. Outside of the heavenly city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers. And the word dogs there is not talking about literal dogs. It's talking about... It's Talk, dogs were those in the Old Testament were involved in sexual perversion, uh, male prostitution, things like that. Outside are the dogs 
and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Well, who gets in? Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who what? Blessed are those who what? Wash their robes so that they may have the right to the what? Tree of life. And may enter by the gates into the city. Amen? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in or enter by the gates into the city. Brothers and sisters, have you washed your robes? If you have a King James translation and you saw something totally different, it says, blessed are those who keep his commandments so they have the right, that's a bad translation. It's not in one single Greek manuscript. So much for the King James Version being the perfect translation. It's not in any Greek manuscript. Desiderius Erasmus, when he was uh, translating the book of Revelation from the Greek into the English, didn't have the very end of the book of Revelation. So he said, oh, I wonder what it said. And he tried to make up the words that it might have said in the Greek by using the Latin Vulgate and translating the Latin into the Greek and then the Greek into the English. And he totally butchered it. It doesn't say you, you earn your way into the salvation by keeping his commandments. You can't earn your salvation. That's why every single manuscript that we have that I know of has robes, washing your robes, amen. You want to make sure you're washed in the blood of Jesus, amen. You want to make sure that you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. How do you wash them? Revelation chapter 7. Verse 14 speaks of the great multitude that no man can number that are in God's kingdom. He says, I said to him, my Lord, you know who they are, or you know, speaking of who they are. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the what? Blood of the Lamb. Amen. You know what kind of detergent you need? The only kind of detergent that takes away your sins is the most perfect detergent ever, the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you been cleansed by the blood, man? Oh, in the very last verse of Revelation 22, not the very last verse, the very last verse I'm going to share with you. A couple verses later, verse 17. What's it say? It's beautiful. Revelation 22, 17. I haven't memorized in the King James, but here's the NASB. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Bride's the church. Say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let one who, the one who is thirsty, are you thirsty today? Come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without what? without cost it's a free gift amen? amen you want salvation it's a free gift because god became a man and died in your place to forgive us our sins take away our sins amen take away those filthy garments so we'd be, be invited to the wedding of the lamb and not just be invited as spectators but become the bride of christ amen and be with christ and join together to become one we'll be part of the body of christ you'll be part of the body of christ forever and ever and i hasn't seen Ear hasn't heard. It hasn't entered into the hearts of men what God's prepared for those who love him. Amen. God has something radical for you. But you must reject your own self-righteousness, your own saying, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. I love you. And you're good compared to other people maybe, but compared to God, we fall infinitely short. Amen. amen. <laughs> you know? That he's our standard. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. None of us come close. That's why we need to be forgiven. Amen. We just have to humble ourselves. You know what? I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. God have mercy on me. Help me to follow you. Help me to be the man or the woman or the young person that you called me to be. Amen. What an awesome God we have. Amen. So if you're not saved, I encourage you now to turn to Jesus. Man, let's make sure we get canopies because I'm feeling bad for all kinds of people. You guys all right way back there? Is it too hot back there? You guys are tough, man. 
because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Okay. Let's all please stand. We're going to pass out the cup and the bread, man. And, but if you have not turned to Jesus Christ yet, if you're not saved by what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf, I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ, recognize what he did for you. Amen. Because there's going to come a time when it's too late to turn. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. Don't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. Don't say, oh, when I get this age or whatever, because your heart could totally change. In fact, if you're not right right now and ready right now, your heart's not right. And you can hear the word and harden your heart. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised to get home today. Make sure you turn to Jesus Christ right now and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. That means you turn from the world and follow Satan and the ways of the world as your Lord. You repent. You turn to Jesus Christ. And you confess him as your Lord. And you accept the free gift of what he did on the cross for you. You believe that he conquered death. He rose again. And the Bible says you'll have eternal life. I encourage you to do that if you haven't. What an awesome God we have.